Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, May 21st, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. MSNBC anchor and best-selling author Chris Matthews discusses his new book, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. And now, enjoy the podcast. So you're not watching hardball. <laughs> I caught you. Um, I see my demo is here and also some younger people. It's nice. Uh, I, uh, obviously, the topic is going to be Bobby Kennedy. And I have a cold, but that's all right. Everybody seems to. Uh, I want to talk about, not about Trump, but sort of a guy who's very different than Trump in a very positive way. And I, I think, uh, I think the, the big story of Bobby Kennedy initially, uh, just to get started, is love. And it seems so simple, but a lot of life is about love. We all know that. It's about love, caring about another person. And he cared dearly about his brother, Jack. It's somehow hard to explain because younger brothers, who have older brothers who are so much more successful and so much more favored than them in height and looks and confidence, social confidence. Bobby was the loser in all those competitions, especially with the two older brothers, Joe Jr. when he was alive, and then Jack. And they were also favored by the father. The father referred to Bobby. He was about 5'9". He was average height, but the brothers were much taller and, and more strapping, if you will. And the old man called him... Uh, I don't like the old man, by the way. I'll get straight. He's the, the, I don't, yeah, and, and you don't have to hate him because of World War II. There's a lot of reasons to hate this guy. <laughs> He's also stupid as a stone when it came to politics. He thought Adley, and we, a lot of us liked Adley, but Adley was going to kill... Hike in the election. Hike in the election. <laughs> he got that one wrong. Uh, he, uh, his father called him a runt. Now, I've never heard of fathers that bad, but he was that bad. In fact, uh, Lem Billings, who was a friend of the family, once said, isn't he so wonderfully generous? Bobby's so generous, naturally generous. And the old man said, I don't know where he got that from. <laughs> he didn't want to take credit for generosity. He was that rough. So I think it comes through in a number of ways, the love for his brother. But he also loved his wife. He loved Ethel. I mean, I've never quite figured out the Jack-Jackie relationship. We can talk about that later. I, I find it mystifying, most of it. But I, uh, I understand it from her direction, because Bunny Mellon told me all about her feelings towards Jack. And, but I never really figured out the Jack end of it. And, and some of it's not that good. But Bobby really loved Ethel. In fact, Jack couldn't understand why anybody would get married. Why would somebody who's young and rich and has the world at his feet ever want to share their marriage, their life, for the rest of their life? And that's what Bobby was doing back in 51. Jack didn't get that. As Jack once said, Jackie's the only one I could have married. Figure that one out. Give that a lot of thought. In other words, he had to get married because he was running in American politics. And he had to get married. And so he married somebody he thought would help him with his uh, career, I guess or his stature, or his statement, whatever you want to say. But Bobby was just in love with Ethel. It's pretty clear. They were two peas in a pod. They were together on everything. I want to talk about his love for his brother, because that's what separates him from a lot of other politicians. I mean, 
1946, when Bobby went to help his brother in that first race for the house, Bobby was so weird and stiff and sort of odd, sort of like a Montgomery Cliff would be playing him, sort of, you know. And <laughs> he was just sort of stiff and weird, you know. And uh, Jack thought he was an embarrassment, so he sent him off to the Italian wards where he didn't think he would do too well. And Bobby ended up making friends with everybody. He would play softball with the kids, and he, was, he became the neighborhood favorite, not a snob at all. Nothing aristocratic about him. He, and he, they did pretty well in those wards. And they thought that they were lost causes. And Bobby did pretty well as a politician just by being a regular person. But he was weird back then. But then by the fall of 1946, having played a, a season of Harvard varsity football, he was a jock. Now, we all went to college, a lot of us, and we know jocks are not wonderful people. They are, uh, you put together oafishness and entitlement, you got a problem. And uh, I went to Holy Cross. I knew some of these characters. And... Uh, uh, Bobby was, uh, he, he, he didn't join the, the aristocratic club, uh, which is Speed, which his brother was in. He was in it, and then he quit because he didn't want to hang around with those guys. He hung around the varsity club, hung around with the jocks. That Thanksgiving of 1946, his brother had just been elected to the Congress. He brought his jocks with him out to Hannesport. He's so proud. That he just wanted them to meet his brother. That's all he wanted to do, meet my brother Jack. And so... That was really the beginning of it. In 1952, when Jack's campaign against Henry Cabot Lodge was going nowhere, it was faltering. Jack didn't know what he was doing. The old man would stick his nose in once in a while and ruin everything. Uh, Joe Kennedy thought the way to run a campaign was to get a bunch of hacks together and kick him in the butt. That was not the way to beat Henry Cabot Lodge. He was tough, and he was a war hero. Bobby came in. Oh, thank you. On the spot. Thank you. And Bobby came in. Jack... Uh, Kenny O'Donnell told this story. I got it from a tape he had done with, uh, Kenny with uh, Sandy Van Oker of NBC. And Kenny uh, had played football with Bobby. In 1952, he went to uh, Jack, called him up to, got him, he'd been working in the campaign. He told Jack, you absolutely need Bobby to run this campaign because he's the only one that can keep your father out of it. And the only one that keep the money coming, but keep him out of it. And Bobby came into the campaign, as Ethel put it to me, because he loved his brother and his brother asked. And that changed all Kennedy history. You can't imagine Kennedy history without Jack winning that Senate race. You can't imagine him winning it without Bobby. And Bobby became his number one enforcer, defender, protector. As uh, Warren Rogers, a guy with the AP, who uh, put it this way, Bobby was technically Jack Kennedy's older brother. or He was technically Jack's little brother, but he watched over him like a big brother. And this carries all the way through to Dallas, how bad Bobby felt that what happened to Jack, because he felt he could have protected him. And this is the way he looked about his brother. He was like a big St. Bernard, you know, looking out for Jack. And that's all he ever wanted to do. He would do the tough stuff for Jack that I think Bobby would never have done for himself. He had to uh, deal with the Judy Campbell problem. Now, here's a problem, okay? Judy Campbell is Jack's girlfriend. 70 phone calls at the White House. He's carrying on this ridiculous affair while he's president of the United States with a showgirl who looked a lot like Jackie. Figure that one out. I don't know. Nobody knows. But he was messing around with her. The phone calls were all on the record. Hoover knew all this stuff. Jager Hoover. He's always sniff, sniffing around. So Bobby, there's two other complications. One is the, the CIA was using, uh, oh, let me go to how tricky this really gets. His, Judy Campbell was Sam Giancana's girlfriend, <laughs> the godfather's girlfriend. Not only that, but at the same time, he's the godfather's girlfriend. He's, she's having an affair with Jack Kennedy. And in addition to all that, 
Bobby's chasing Giancana because he went after the mob the minute he got into office. Hoover didn't believe there was a mafia. Bobby got the list up at Appalachia, that big meeting that was shown in The Godfather, that big meeting with all the black cars. Bobby was the one chasing the mob, especially Giancana. There was one, so Giancana knew that Bobby's after him. He knew that Bobby's brother, the president of the United States, was having an affair with his girlfriend. And one other element, the CIA was using Giancana to get Castro. So Bobby knew this had to be uh, untangled. <laughs> so he had to break that relationship up, which wasn't easy. He also had to break up the guy who set up the relationship, Sinatra. He told us, Johnny, you got to break this relationship with Sinatra. You have to, because Sinatra, I don't know who Sinatra thought he was doing him a favor, setting him up with Judy Campbell, who's the godfather's girlfriend. What is he up to? But he thought he was Jack's friend. He wasn't the best friend to have, so but he broke that one up. Of course, you know what, had, what happened with Sinatra. Uh, Jack Kennedy was supposed to go out and stay at Palm Springs at his place. And he, in fact, he built a helicopter, uh, helicopter port for him. And then we got the word, Jack's not only not coming, he's staying with Bing Crosby that weekend. <laughs> they are the two white guys competing for the best jazz singers in the, in the 20th century. And the other guy's a Republican. <laughs> Bing's a Republican. And he was really mad. So he went out with his hammer and started banging away at the cement helicopter port that he built. For, he would, imagine he would have done that to Jack at the time if he could. But he blamed Bobby, of course. See, Bobby's job was to take the heat. And he, he took it for his brother because he loved his brother. He was willing to do anything to help his brother Jack. And that's really a big part of this story. It started in 1952, as I said, running the campaign against Henry Cabot Lodge, which was a real up, up, uh, uphill campaign. So Bobby takes over the campaign. First thing he does is tell all the slugs working in the campaign, no more money. You're not getting paid. You're all volunteers here. That made him really popular. And then they go to Jack, and he says, don't bother. And as Ethel said to me, he told them, I'm the one. In other words, don't bother going to the, the candidate. I'm the boss. And he was willing to do that to make the campaign the kind of Kennedy campaign that most of them had been, which are always based upon the spirit of volunteering. That's how they work. Uh, then he had to go tell the guy running for re-election as governor they weren't going to help him anymore. This is Paul Dever, who was getting into trouble at the end of the campaign. All he wanted to do was have a united campaign, the governor and the Senate candidate together. A reasonable proposal, except he was losing his race and Jack was starting to win. So Jack said, I don't want to do this. The old man wanted them to team up with Dever, who was a pal of his. And Jack said to Bobby, go tell him we're not going to make the deal and keep me out of it. This was Jack. You know, keep me out of it make the deal. And Bobby went and did it. In 1960, Jack went out and told Ben Brown and a bunch of reporters, I'm going to carry in Ohio. He was a tough guy. He was going to carry Ohio to prove that he was for real. For a Democrat, you know, if the Republicans lose Ohio, they lose the general. It's a fact. So he said, I'm going to win in the primaries. And then Bobby had the job of going to Governor Mike DeSalle, going in the back room with him, and in a rubber hose sort of operation, he said to the guy, you're going to go out publicly for my brother. You're going to do it. And the guy came out like he'd just been worked over, and he endorsed Jack Kennedy. This was the, he did the same thing with Governor Taws. Bobby was a serious enforcer for his brother. He made things happen. I don't know what he threatened, but, but John Bailey, the former chair of the Democratic Party, was in the room, and he said, I thought I was watching a mob operation. This is Bobby. He will do anything for his brother. In the West Virginia primary, who do you think brought up... Uh, Hubert Humphrey's lack of a war record in World War II, which was lethal down there. Everybody fought in the war down there. Bobby. Bobby went to FDR Jr., brought him in for the particular goal of blaming, uh, saying that Humphrey dodged the draft. Humphrey never got over it. By the way, that comes into play in 1968 when they're running against each other. I'm sure Humphrey remembered that. I know he did. 
But then, of course, the election night when they won, Bobby goes over to, and congratulates, kisses Mural, and congratulates Humphrey as if nothing had happened. Uh, Bobby was tough. Jack didn't have to do it. So Jack develops this reputation as Prince Charming. And we all grew up with this. Jack was the charmer. He was the romantic. But a guy I went to high school with had figured him out. He said, you know, I don't think he's a romantic. I think he's a realist. I think he's a tough guy. And most people figured out over time that Jack wasn't the nice guy. Bobby was the nice guy. Jack was the, uh, as Arthur Schlesinger, who knew them both very well, put it so brilliantly. He said, Jack was a realist, uh, brilliantly disguised as a romantic. And Bobby was a realist, brilliantly described, disguised as a, as a realist. Bobby was the good guy. This is the thing. But he was willing to play the bad guy so his brother could win. And he did it all the way through. Uh, this is who he was. He was his brother's enforcer. There's another thing I learned from Schlesinger. I heard it in a, in a meeting at the Aspen Institute, uh, Aspen uh, Ideas Festival in Denver, out in Aspen, actually, one time. He said something when he was very old. He said, Schlesinger, he said, you know, politics is essentially a learning profession. Boy, do we miss that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who's growing today. I mean, I, I'm, I know these people pretty personally, but I just don't see any growth they don't seem to be any better one Saturday than the Saturday before. The same old staff-written, boring, cheap metaphor lines that I used to write, you know. <laughs> I used to write them better, but it was still these metaphors, you know, that they think are so clever. There's no brains there. <clears throat> Bobby was always learning. And I think one thing, and he was learning about the big stuff, too, that the people you care about and have affection for, people from your ethnic group or religion, the ones you really feel comfortable most with, most with are the bad guys. That's a hard lesson to learn in life. Because you're naturally with your own crowd you grew up with. And let's take the example of Joe McCarthy. Bobby liked Joe McCarthy. He never stopped liking him. But he learned he was the bad guy. And it was pretty clear by uh, the, the, the end of uh, this, the spring of 1953 with uh, Roy Cohn bopping around Europe with his friend David Shine. And I could never actually figure out that relationship. I know he was in love with David Shine, but I don't know what it was about exactly. Uh, and they were bopping all around Europe together, making fools of themselves, ripping books off the shelves of the USIA offices, and the press is laughing at them. Meanwhile, Bobby has got the job of finding out that the British have been secretly shipping uh, war materials to the Chinese while we're fighting, we and the British are fighting the Chinese army in, uh, in Korea. You know, it's one of the few times as a liberal communist wrote at the time that McCarthy ever found anything interesting that the country should know about. And, hey, they re and Bobby did that report, and then he quit. He told McCarthy, you're blowing it, you're, you're, you're destructive, you're, you're going down the wrong road, you're going to destroy yourself, and left him. That next January, he came back as the Democratic uh, Council with McClellan and went to war with uh, Cohen. In fact, Cohen said he, get, he came back to get me, which is partially true. And then he wrote the resolution condemning McCarthy. Bobby had to write it which became the basis for the report that they voted on that fall. So Bobby had a break with the guy he really cared about. In fact, the most poignant part of the story, I think, is what Kathleen told me, Kathleen Townsend, his daughter. He said in 1957, when McCarthy had finally achieved his goal of drinking himself to death, which he was working on very hard, drinking whiskey constantly, always drunk, as Bobby would say in his diary, coming to work, coming to hearings drunk all the time. He'd go over and visit him, however, and treat him like a real guy, like a person of some prestige. Bobby always stuck with him. People would talk about the meetings. And he'd go over there with Lem Billings or someone else and, and try to treat McCarthy's new wife well and talk to her because he was too drunk to talk. 
And then when McCarthy finally died, they got the word on the, on the car radio at National Airport. Kathleen said, my father, daddy was so overwrought, he drove around the airport three times. And then he snuck out to the uh, funeral. Seventy senators went to the service in Washington, believe that, to the McCarthy. Seventy showed up. And then they had the private thing out at the St. Mary's Church out in Appleton. Bobby snuck out in the, in the uh, Senate plane, had a reporter take him to the uh, gravesite and stayed in the car the whole time so nobody would see him so he wouldn't hurt his brother's chances politically. And that was the thing that Jack respected about him. He said, Bobby was a loyalist. He stuck with you if he was with you. And, and Teddy said the same thing before he died in his book. This is a strange thing. Maybe you have to be Irish to figure this thing out, but it didn't have anything to do except comfort and affection for somebody you grew up with who had always been around dating your sisters, been a friend of your father's, and yet he brought him down. He brought him down. In fact, he felt guilty at the end because he was saying public things against McCarthy. So he went to see him before he died, and he was glad he at least got to say goodbye to him. But that's Bobby, learning all the time. Uh, he learned civil rights in a very emotional way. His close friend, John Sigenthor, of course, a great journalist, was his top guy. And Sigenthor went down to keep an eye on the Freedom Riders in 61 and got his head bashed. And he said to one, one of the local Southern white guys, I'm with the federal government. That was the wrong thing to say. The guy hit him over the head with a pipe. And the police left him there on the street for a half hour. And they finally hauled him away to the hospital. That's when Martin Luther King said... Uh, Robert Kennedy became educated in a real hurry, and I can tell you the thing that sealed it for him, perhaps more than anything else. After John Siegenthal was beaten, someone he knew, I think everything he thought the administration of justice and law enforcement was supposed to be about had been violated. Bobby was very experiential. He didn't have an ideology. He wasn't like Ted Kennedy. He wasn't conservative like his brother. He was always learning and learning, trying to figure out what he believed. In uh, the late spring of 1963, he thought he had street cred with the black community. He thought he had done great things. He had gotten Martin Luther King out of jail. Once, he got him out again and again after the Birmingham protests. He had raised the money secretly with the labor unions for 2,000 kids to get out of jail. He really thought he had, had gained some credibility with the black community. So he asked for a meeting. He asked James Baldwin to put it together. And Baldwin put it together in their apartment on Central Park South. And he walked into a room with people like Lena Horne are there and Henry, Harry Belafonte and uh, Lorraine Hansberry, who had written Raisin in the Sun, a really intellectual crowd, very committed people. But there was one young guy there, an African-American kid who had been in the Freedom Rides, had been beaten up and jailed during the Freedom Rides. And that kid spoke to him over the, the whole room, stopped, and that young kid stood up and said, you know what, I'm not going to serve in Vietnam. I'm not fighting for this country because this country has treated me this way. And Bobby said, you won't fight for your country. Bobby couldn't believe an American wouldn't fight for their country. He just didn't get it. And so he basically called the meeting over after a couple hours. And he goes up to people like Harry Belafonte and said, why didn't you defend me? And Belafonte said, well, I wouldn't have any credibility with this group if I defended you. I had to stand against you. So Bobby said, these people, what have I done for them? And they won't even give me any credit. So he starts thinking about it. It's another one of these broodings he went through. So he thought for a couple weeks, then he told a guy, a wonderful guy, Ed Guthman, I got to know, his press secretary, a wonderful guy. He was later the editor of the LA Times and the Inquirer in Philly. And then he finally said to Guthman, I guess if I were in his shoes, this young kid's, if I'd gone through what he's gone through, I might feel differently about this country. And then a couple weeks after that, he was the one, if you ever saw the Robert Drew documentary about the crisis, uh, about the uh, desegregation of uh, University of Alabama, he was the one who sat with his brother in the Oval Office, and he said to Jack Kennedy, you've got to go on national television 
for, net, for civil rights. You've got to finally do this. No president's ever done it. You have got to do it. And he used almost the same language that he heard from the black community that night at the apartment with James Baldwin and the others. Bobby was always opening himself up to learning other people's experience and what he can learn from that and how he could grow from that. He was not like most politicians today, you know, like Bernie Sanders is the same as he was at 68. Let's face it. As, as Howard Feynman says, he's still yelling up at the administration building, non-negotiable demands. It's, it, nothing's changed. Bobby was always trying to figure out, or Barry Goldwater, there's very little change in them, these guys. A little change in Goldwater. He actually came out for the 18-year-old vote when somebody said to him, we draft him at 18. He said, oh, okay. That <laughs> pierced his brain. Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis was another classic example. Bobby's first reaction was to be the hawk. He's out there with Curtis LeMay. Let's go bomb the hell out of them. They got missiles. They double-crossed us. Let's bomb them. And then he thought, well, not only about Berlin, which they've all thought about. We move on Cuba. They go on Berlin. Then we have a nuclear war. Uh, he said, Why are, we, are we really going to be morally the country that carries out a Pearl Harbor in reverse? Are we going to be that country that just starts bombing Cubans and Russians and killing a whole bunch of people because we don't like to have missiles? How's that going to look to the world? And so he started to brood again. And finally, he's got, got his buddy, Georgi Bolshakov, his back-channel guy. Not to be confused with Jared's back-channel guy. But, <laughs> but he had a back-channel guy with Moscow. And he worked out a deal. Okay, what, what, he floated the idea. Suppose we pull our Jupiter missiles out of Turkey. Will you pull your missiles? Uh, by the way, they're intermediate. They would reach every major city but Seattle in a 3,000-mile range. They weren't defensive missiles. And, he, uh, and, he's, and that, idea, that idea became the secret deal. This, of course, they had to keep secret. So Bobby um, was learning all the time. That's what the book's about, if you want to know more about this. Um, Caroline Kennedy once said, we sell these books out the back of the car. <laughs> um, this is the back of the car. <laughs> so did Bobby change? That's always the question I get asked by people. If it, and who wouldn't have had? I remember... Uh, I think everybody here my age or even close to it knows where they were when Jack Kennedy was killed. And uh, I remember I was at Holy Cross checking my mail, and some clown came up to me and said, I'll bet you five bucks Kennedy was just shot. They wanted to make a quick five dollars. I don't know what the hell. Some people are weird. And uh, I went to history class, and they just, really great professor of history up there. He said, well, you can go home. I won't take this cut. You won't get a cut for this. Some people stayed. Some people real grinds in those days. They never left the class. Uh, I went down and watched Cronkite the whole afternoon. And so one time I went with one of my heroes on an airplane with Pat Monahan, and I go, we were talking about this. And he, Pat almost invested me into the knighthood. He got, uh, he's talking about the Kennedy assassination, Jack's assassination. He said, we'll never get over it. And he looked at me and says, you'll never get over it. I always remember that. So imagine what Bobby had devoted his whole life to his brother, how his reaction was. Well, he was finished. He, was, he lost so much weight. His shirts didn't fit by 10 sizes. It was outrageous. He was turned ashen. He looked like he was a dead man. He couldn't talk. I mean, Ed Gutham would come in and tell them uh, and, and give them people to just go ask him questions. Do anything to get his mind going again. He's just shut down. You've got to get this guy animated again. And they kept working. He knew what was going on, but he, he was just uh, finished. And... Uh, Certainly changed. But I will argue this based upon my research, that Bobby was always, from the very beginning, a much more generous person than most people 
would ever think. Uh, from the beginning, I told you the story about how his father couldn't believe he was that generous. In fact, he put it down. With Dave Hackett, his best friend from, uh, from Milton School, he would always, he'd say, we've got to do something for poor people when they're riding around the train somewhere. We've got to look out for these. We've got to come up with something. When Father Feeney, I don't know if you guys who aren't Catholic would know this, Father Feeney was this wild priest from uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, from Harvard Square, and he was out there trying to talk to kids that are not going to Harvard but to go to his classes. And uh, this guy, all I know is in school when I was at St. Christopher's, they would say, they would cross, this is how Catholics did things in the old days, they would cross out his poems in our poetry book. So we weren't to read them anymore. Father Feeney was off the list. And... Uh, but Bobby went crazy because it said no salvation outside the church. And he said, that can't be God's plan. How can nobody, how can God condemn everybody who's not a, a Roman Catholic? And he went, to, he wrote a letter to Cushing, the Cardinal. His mother, Rose, was scared to death he'd get excommunicated. Well, the good news is Feeney got excommunicated. So Bobby would do these things. Uh, when he was head of the lecture service down at uh, that lecture club down at UVA Law School, he brought in all kinds of people. But one of the people he brought in was Ralph Bunch who was the first African-American to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And down there was still segregated. It's hard to believe Virginia today, because I live right near it, was a segregated state. And they had laws you could not have integrated meetings of any kind. And Bobby, even his classmates were well-educated young guys, and I guess maybe one or two women, but they were young guys, and none of them wanted to have anything to do with it. They said, this will ruin our political careers down here if we bring a black guy in to speak. And Bobby calls, writes a letter to Colgate Darden, the president of the university, and he said, look, this is going to blacken the name of this school if you de- demand a segregated audience here. He's not going to come. He will not come under their circumstance. You're going to make more publicity. It's going to be bad for you. And why don't we just declare this as a student event? Because then it can be integrated. Okay? So he got him to do it. And that night, Ralph Bunch stayed with Ethel and, and Bobby, and they threw all kinds of stuff at the house. It was supposed to be the safest place to stay, but it was not very safe that night for Ralph Bunch. But Bobby made these stands early on in his life. It wasn't like he all of a sudden became this liberal at the end. And so I think it's, that is, to me, very powerful stuff. I think the thing that changed with Bobby was not just his brother dying, but I think his father having the stroke, getting the hell out of the way. I think in late 61, when, when he had that stroke, and all he could say, don't believe this thing in this movie, Chappaquiddick. All he, he didn't say alibi, alibi. He could only say one word, no, and it meant nothing. That's what, no. And that's all the old man could do afterwards. And so Bobby, I think, was more his own man. And that's when Bobby began to do things like going to Native American reservations. That's when he began to look out for people who had problems. That's when he discovered Cesar Chavez. That's when he went down to the Mississippi Delta, where people were living on molasses just enough to keep going, just enough sugar to keep walking, where these people were dying like in third world countries, like the Sudan or something. And he went out and looked for these problems. He's all the time educating himself and his family. He brought, He came back... That morning after he'd been out there in the, in the Delta, and he just looked at his family, all these rich kids eating a great breakfast together. He said, you do not know how lucky you are, you kids. You do not know what you're. So that's how he raised his kids, teaching them they're lucky. You know, I think uh, I came up with this thinking about this audience tonight. And I think uh, when you write, and we all write, when you write, you learn something about your writing, which is that after X many drafts, six or seven drafts, you write something you're happy with, and people come up to you and say, you know, you write like you talk. But you don't do that till six or seven drafts. So what's that about? <laughs> it's not all about burping out ideas like some people do today in politics. It's not, it's not about impulse. It's not about native instinct. It's about refining who you are and what you believe in. And you spend most of your life refining what you believe in. 
And what, what matters to you? That's what you do as you grow up. It's called growing up. What matters to you? You try to figure out who you are in this world. And I think Bobby was always trying to figure it out. He didn't have it figured out. And I think that's what his life was, redrafting, constantly redrafting, trying to figure out who he was. At that last night at the Ambassador Hotel, he said something I think is so important to the writing of this book, and I, I didn't know how important Bobby's story would be until the beginning of this year, when I really, beginning of last year, when I began writing it. I have an association with those who are less well-off, he told a reporter, where perhaps we can accomplish something, bringing the country back together. If the division continues, we're going to have nothing but chaos and havoc here in the United States. And later that night, right before he was shot, he said it all again. I think we can end the divisions within the United States, whether it's between blacks and whites, between the poor and the more affluent, or between age groups or on the war in Vietnam. We can start to work together. We are a great country. I intend to make that my basis for running. And I think he had found a a good in politics, a purpose, his purpose. He had found his mission in life. He wanted to go on. He dearly wanted to go on. And when when I look at the train ride that he took from, his body took from St. Patrick's in New York in that June day 50 years ago, and you look at the people along the train tracks, they are his legacy. Because it's the last time in modern history you'll see those pictures of African-Americans in Philadelphia, 30th Street Station, singing, 20,000 of them spontaneously, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And they knew all the verses, unlike a lot of us. They know all the verses from church, and they sang them all for him, just spontaneously. Nobody said, now sing. And the little, and the places in between the big cities, between uh, and among Newark and Philadelphia and Baltimore and Wilmington, you saw the little white groups of poor whites, and I have them on the back of my book, because it's one of the reasons I wrote this book, is that the, war, the, war, the working class white, the, in some places the desperately poor white people, he never forgot them. He wasn't some guy with, believing in radical chic and picking out the most exotic ethnic group to root for. He was always looking out for the white working class as well as the other people. As Jack Newfield, one of my heroes, said, he was as empathetic to the white working guy and woman as he is to anybody else. He did not separate. In fact, he said he thought of his people as cops, firefighters, waitresses, construction workers were Bobby's people of all backgrounds. And I think today it's a very hard thing to see those people working together. They seem to be at odds. Trump has gotten them. Reagan got them. broke up the coalition, the Roosevelt coalition. Bobby was manfully and sometimes artfully and sometimes unartfully trying to keep that coalition together. He would ride around in a car in Gary, Indiana, which was an ethnic town with people with long Eastern European unspellable names. There was a whole group of them. And with the blacks coming in and being angry about it, we know that situation. Neighborhoods changing and older people left behind. And he rode around the car with Tony Zale, the prize fighter. Remember him? Tony Zale was the guy that fought Rocky Graziano and somebody up there likes me. He beat him actually twice. He beat Graziano twice. But in the movie, he just beat him once. And then Graziano, that was Imogene Coco's boyfriend later on. Some of the people here know what I'm talking about. You got to remember this stuff. You're carrying this information. And um, he had Tony Zale on one side of the convertible, and he had Richard Hatcher, the first African-American mayor, on the other side, so that the people would see what he's trying to do. He's trying to keep people together. And I think about what we need today is that again. I don't know who can do it. But somebody's got to get out there and try unity as a theme. Just that. We're getting this together. I think Bobby was trying to do it. And I'm so glad I wrote this book. Thank you. Thank you, Dale.
I mean, I don't know whether Jackie turned off life support. I, I sort of, I didn't get into that part of the life. I, uh, I think it wasn't much of a decision. I think I remember, I remember how we all felt. <clears throat> I was up in uh, Montreal when Bobby was killed. In fact, it's a great story in itself. I went to uh, a friend of mine. He was looking for a job up there, and I went up there with him for the weekend. I was at Chapel Hill in grad school, and I, I went up there with him. And uh, this is the 60s, guys. This is what it was like. Friends of yours going to Canada. And... Uh, and we went looking around to try to find the debate between Bobby Kennedy and Gene McCarthy. <clears throat> and we, uh, we went to some bartender up in Montreal. And he said, can we watch the debate? He said, you Americans come in here and think you can tell us what to watch. And he was watching Lawrence Welk. And he said, hey, okay, you got your show. And, uh, and then we get in the car the next day after turning on the radio at 3 in the morning and finding out, thinking it was a reprise of what happened in Dallas. It was happening again. I, I mean, a lot of people here probably went through that. You know, what is this? We used to listen to the radio to find out what was going on at 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, <clears throat> it had happened again. And I remember driving in a car with a cab to the airport that morning. And the cab driver was a real French-Canadian nationalist, I guess. He said, the giant has stubbed its toe. And he kept saying it over and over again, like he's so proud of that line, that metaphor. He goes, what a fool. <laughs> anyway, I, I, don't know what, I don't know whether Jackie was the one that made this. But I have heard that story about she gave the order decision to... Uh, to pull off life support, but I don't think there was much choice. Uh, he, he was dead. Do you, well, you want me to read it all because it's long. I'm sorry, but you've asked. You're responsible. Okay. In the book, Janet, Jackie, and Lee, author Randy Tara Borelli writes that when the decision needed to be made about turning off life support for Bobby, neither Ethel nor Ted could do it. Uh, they appealed to Jackie, and she gave the orders. Is that true? I don't know, but I've read that. Do you want to read them? Coming up. It's more like an interaction then. Good. Then I won't know the answer. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Dale. Thank you. Could I have the other team? Yes, go for it. Thank you. You've been very nice to me tonight, so thank you. Do you believe that RFK would have both secured the Democratic nomination in 1968 and or defeated Nixon in the general election? Well, I know, I know some parts to that answer, and I think you have to, well, we have to put it together. I know that if he'd won, the, the, the Vietnam War would have been half as long. I know that. He was going to stop that war, and he had the guts to do it, and he would have taken the hit. I really believe that's what he was going to do when he got elected. If he got elected. Would he have beaten Nixon? I'm almost sure. Nixon was jittery already. Nixon was scared of the Kennedys. There's a scene in my book where Nixon's watching Bobby announce in the Senate caucus room. And, and after they turned off the TV, I had this from Ehrlichman, John Ehrlichman. He turned off the TV, and Nixon's still staring at the TV, and it's blank. And uh, he said something like, it's in the book, forces will be released we cannot imagine something really weird. I think he was going to be weirded out. And I, I think that he, he knew it would all come. He would have scared to death to debate the guy. Can you imagine him debating a Kennedy? I don't think that would have happened. But another thing I know for sure, we know how bad the Democratic convention was. And all of us who watched it were so dismayed by it. Because 
We can talk about a police riot, but we know there were some bad guys in the so-called student crowd that day, some throwing horrible stuff at the cops. It was a terrible, terrible time in our history. But it was the time that has become our time. We are still the country of August 1968. We're the country divided between the police and the people, uh, the white and black. All those divisions really were ripped wide open in that convention. I believe it would have been a totally different scene and by then, Gene McCarthy had let us all down. He just wasn't into it anymore. And I saw that him campaigning. He just lost it. I think he felt bad, I think. I'm projecting, but he just couldn't survive Bobby's death. He wasn't into it anymore. If Bobby had walked into that convention in 68 in Chicago with Daly there, totally loyal to the Kennedy family, if he had walked in there, and it would have been very much like what happened in 64 when he walked into the convention in Atlantic City. The magic of the Kennedy reality would have taken over. And a lot of those delegates who were not tied by primaries in those days, I think would have sh- shaken loose. I think people like James Tate of Philadelphia and Dick Daly and people across the country and the Tammany guys in New York, if he had won the California primary, which he did win, if he had come up here in New York and won two weeks later, I think everything could have broken loose. But I do know if it did break loose... And he, he had gone into that convention with a bunch more delegates. I think it would have been an amazing, positive thing for the country to see two people, Humphrey, good people, actually, Humphrey and Kennedy going at each other over who should get the Democratic nomination instead of a police riot is what we got. It just was bad for the country. It began a very bad era we're still living through. You need to have strong opposition leaders. You can hate Trump all you want, but you still have to find a champion to beat him. You still have to do that. It's your job. If you don't like him, you've got to find a champion to beat him. And that's a challenge. And I think back then we had a champion on the NA war front, and we had a, you know, a decent guy on the wrong side of the issue, Humphrey. But uh, it would have been so much different. That's what I'll predict. I, I think Bobby would have done a lot. He, he would have been against capital punishment. There are a lot of things he would have done differently in our in a, in trend of the Democratic Party if he'd lived. And I, and I think even if he lost, we would have had Bobby as the senator from New York and I think he was pretty much re- resigned if he did lose to carry on his cause, which is to look out for people people were who had been overlooked. He wanted to be Bobby Kennedy. I'm absolutely convinced he figured out who he was by the time he was killed. And, and he, didn't, he didn't see it coming. People all look at this stuff. You think Jack knew he was going to get killed in Dallas? He was having the time of his life riding around in that car with Jackie. He looked like he had the world at his feet with his beautiful wife, and he's having the time that people were cheering him like me. You think he knew? People... We look back at this stuff, and I think they were very hopeful guys and when they were alive, and that's why I sort of decided in my book not to write about assassinations, but to write about lives, because the lives are what we really want back, you know. That's it. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> you mentioned JFK's affairs. Yeah, there are was, a lot of them. Was this... There are a lot of them, but I don't write about them, but I lot of them. There are a lot of them. Was this as much the question of a scandal as the Stormy Daniels issue today? Uh, different times. No. Uh, <clears throat> there, the, the, you know, I'm sorry if I sound like it's a long time ago, and it, <clears throat> but some of it's pretty funny. I mean. He goes out with Inga Binga, Inga Arvid. He's in love with her. People say he was the closest thing to a relationship he had, a really copacetic feeling. <coughs> His father didn't want him to go out with somebody who had obviously already, well, she was still married to a Hungarian film director, which is a problem. <coughs> also, she was known to have been in the picture with Hitler. 
She was a, a, a hit, I mean, Jagger Hoover thought she was a spy. <clears throat> and uh, she had gone to Herman Goering's wedding to cover it. <laughs> and then she was seen with Hitler, and Hitler thought she was the perfect Nordic beauty. This is all bad news for a, a guy wanting to run for Senate in the United States. <clears throat> so Hoover, so Jack gets chased down to, uh, they take him out of Washington. He's in an intel. Didn't want a guy with a girlfriend like that in intel. So they sent him down to Charleston. So he's down there, and he's, he's up there. He's spending a four-day weekend with uh, Inga at the uh, Fort Sumner Hotel, which is still there. And apparently the only time they came out was to go to church, which, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> this is the Kennedys, and you have to figure them out that way. Uh, but Hoover's sn- snooping the whole time. He's, Hoover's getting all the tapes. Tapes listening to all that stuff, he and Clyde or whatever. And that's uh, just Jack. And then, but other stuff is totally reckless. It's terrible stuff. The Mary Meyer relationship was, I think, a real relationship, but I'm sure Jackie didn't like it. That was at the end. And there's Ellen Romash, who was the East German, you know, that, that, that Bobby Baker was putting out. And, uh, and Jack was involved with her. I mean, it was horrendously reckless what he was engaged with. <clears throat> and uh, no, it wouldn't happen today. This is right up there with, uh, we, we, you know, it's like, in a totally different order, it's like you wouldn't know that FDR couldn't walk. Uh, it's, uh, we don't know that because nobody took pictures of him. But where, like when he fell voting that time, and that was a, a decision that the press made as a group, and you could say that was a bad decision, but it was a great one. It was a great bad decision. Of all the mistakes the press has ever made, that was the right one to make. And with Jack, they all looked out for each other until Phil Graham, remember Phil Graham, was his buddy starts talking when he had lost his mind you know, Catherine Graham's husband just starts talking to the public about Jack's girlfriends. That's when they knew he was crazy. You're not supposed to do that. <clears throat> hey, does anybody think this was possible? It, it, it shouldn't have happened. It wouldn't happen today. But you could also say if we knew Jack Kennedy's health records, he would never have been elected president. Then when Linda Johnson and uh, Indy Edwards and uh, John Connolly went out and talked about his bad health, back that he had Addison's disease, they were telling the truth. And he was vulnerable. But... We didn't know. What was the question? <laughs> it was something like that. Clearly, we knew. I mean, people would say they knew, and then they'd say, Ben Bradley was a close friend of mine, and Ben said, we never knew. I never knew. I never knew. Jack was going out with his sister-in-law, Mary Meyer, <laughs> and he swear he never knew. But then later he'd say, Jack really was in love with Tony. <laughs> you know, so he must have known something. But uh, he made a move on her on a boat one night, and... Uh, on Tony, his wife. Uh, it's, Jack was something else. <laughs> it was so, some of it was today, I, I think it would be considered un, uh, unlawful, un, un, unallowable. But what am I supposed to say? <laughs> Marilyn Monroe, I think, was true. I think that was true. Yes. What, what you going to do? <laughs> there aren't many great presidents. <laughs> I don't know how I get this job. I'm just, I don't write about that stuff. I just know it. <laughs> yes, dear. What are you playing, Jack Benny? I mean. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> I think you got it. Okay. <clears throat> more about relationships. More questions. Can they you... are fascinating. <laughs> Can you please talk? <clears throat> about the love between a president and speechwriter. How did Bobby 
and Ted Sorensen get along? Wow. Well, uh, we just lost Richard Goodwin today. He died. I just did the show tonight, and I, I paid tribute to him because he was one of my heroes. We have a club called the Judson Welver Society, which is only a club because it was put together by some people back in Kurtzberg and a few other people, and um, former presidential speechwriters. And we would meet every couple of years, and would be all the speechwriters going back to Roosevelt. You wouldn't believe it. And you know, you'd, you'd go sit, and people would have a few drinks, to say the least, and and you have Pat Buchanan in the same room as Clark Clifford and Arthur Schlesinger and Ted Sorensen and Peggy Noonan. It's an amazing group. And I'm st- Peggy and I are running it now. We're putting it back together like the Blues Brothers. We've got to get it back together. Because it was off the record and people would actually, in the old days when people drank, it was a lot more fun. And they, and they would say, and then Pat would say something like, and then I threw some red meat into Nixon's cage. And we'd actually talk like that. And, you know, this, what, wouldn't you, why didn't you tell us that back then, you know? But I think, I think Ted Sorensen was Jack Kennedy's uh, blood bank, his, his intellectual blood bank. Sorensen had this, um, see, speechwriters write off of the person they write for. They don't write for themselves. They, they try to give words to who they think the other guy or person's spirit is. So they talk from that. They naturally, see, Sorensen was never a great writer before or after he worked with Jack Kennedy. And Jack Kennedy was never a great speech giver, you know, before Sorensen. So they, it's, a, it's a symbiotic thing. You know how to write for somebody. Uh, uh, the guy who wrote for, uh, I've heard his name now, uh, I'll think of a minute. The guy who wrote for Roosevelt, who wrote that great speech about my dog Fowler. I may, only Roosevelt could deliver that speech. The way. Peggy writes Roosevelt for uh, Reagan. She can hear him. And, uh, she, uh, but it's usually, it's, she thought of George Sr. in the way I think we think of George Sr. now as sort of this noble guy, not the coolest guy in the world, but a noble patriot guy, patriotic guy, a political moderate. And, and, and she wrote for him as a guy who said, you know, I'm not very articulate. It got me when she gave that speech. She wrote that speech for him back at the New Orleans Convention in 68 or 88. And uh, so I think it's a relationship. Now, Bobby, Ted was looking out for Bobby. Ted didn't want Bobby to run in 68. There were two Teds that didn't want to run, Ted Kennedy and Ted Sorensen, because they wanted Bobby to be president in 72. They didn't want him to get him hurt. You didn't want to get him hurt. And Bobby, or Teddy Kennedy was worried about him getting shot. And that was smart. He was afraid, look what's going to happen. It's happened before. It's going to happen again. And Teddy had to live his whole life with that. He used to take different routes back and forth from the Capitol and the Senate all the time. I mean, that was always on his mind. It had to be. And um, in fact, one time when I met Bobby, or met Teddy, back when I was just starting in politics, and we were at a fundraiser out at his house in and, uh, and, and McLean, and he starts telling this story. Yeah, I went out to work for my brother in 60, got out to Utah. There's no cars around, so I saw a car with some keys in it, and I start to drive it away. That's Teddy. And then he goes, and I felt a double-barrel shotgun in my back. And I, I decided I wasn't going to take the car. Uh, and I thought, this is Ted Kennedy talking about shotguns in his back, and both his brothers were shot dead. I mean, it's strange how people uh, separate themselves from the horror. They just don't think about it, I guess. I don't know. But Teddy, uh, they got along very well. He just was more cautious than, uh, than Bobby. Jack used Teddy, uh, Ted Sorensen, but he never let him come upstairs and join the country, his social life. He was uh, always staff. Jack's friends were Stuart, uh, or rather David Ormsby Gore, uh, ja- uh, Charlie Bartlett, sixth generation Yale, uh, ja- uh, Ben Bradley. He, Bob, Jack was more of an aristocrat, and, and along those lines, Bobby was not. Bobby's friends with 
There's Mankiewicz and uh, Gotham, all his buddies, uh, Jim Whitaker. He liked jocks and he liked all kinds of people, uh, John Glenn and Andy Williams. All those people were all his friends. He didn't have an aristocratic uh, bent where Jack did. Big difference between the two of them, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, continuing. <clears throat> Do you want to continue? Yeah, I love this. Okay. It's awesome. <laughs> Nobody's left yet. <laughs> all right. So continuing with relationships. Um, I got a good one for you. What? What? Jackie's attitude towards Jack. And I okay. got it. I got it from the horse's mouth from Bunny Mellon. Bunny's my. We have a house in, a, in one of the islands up in Massachusetts, and I had sort of the Nick. I sort of have the uh, Nick Carraway house next to Gadsby's house. <laughs> it's a nice house, but it's not Bunny Mellon's house. And Bunny and I, we've got to know each other. In fact, uh, she actually gave me, before she died, a long interview out at Upperville at her horse country house in Virginia. And it was an interesting thing because she's one of the wealthiest women in the world, and the paintings are of unimaginable wealth in the house, and they're all very low-key. She believed in a very discreet kind of way of showing these paintings. And, and uh, she's sitting there, and she was a hot 90, high 90s, and uh, she had all her marbles. But she had this big button on the wall, like in Reggie Van Gleason III with Jackie Gleason. <laughs> Whenever she wanted this guy to come in, she would hit this gigantic button. And this African-American guy would come out in full livery, you know, all dressed up. It was just old school, I guess. And so I asked her, what's the story about Jackie and Jack? Because you were best. Jackie looked up to, looked up to Bunny. She was her, her mentor in social life. She was old money, and she had all the, you know, all the... Uh, Stuff as Ben Bradley calls the stud book. I mean, she had everything in terms of family. And uh, Jackie wanted to have that. So she told her how to paint, how to do the rose garden, told Jack how to do the rose garden. She told uh, Jackie, how, Jackie how to decorate their house and everything. And everything. She did it all. She was her mentor. So I said, what about Jack and her? Why did she put up with it? And she said, well, Jackie had a lot of guys that came down the road. And she only wanted one. So simple. And if that was the price to have that one, she would pay it. I thought that was pretty honest and, uh, and very knowable. You can figure that one out. She didn't want the seconds and thirds and also rands. She wanted Jack. And I'm sure the worse he was to it, the more elusive he was, the more charming he was. I'm sure it's the way people are. But I thought it was great. I got it from her, and she said, sit on the dunes and talk about it. And that's what she got from her firsthand from her close friend Jackie. And I don't think getting closer than that. Jack's feelings were hard to read. Just, I don't know. I can't read them. I better not say what I think because I don't know. But I do think <laughs> some things. <laughs> I think he's a very hard guy to figure. I know Bobby was in love with Ethel. And um, I know he was. And, uh, and he wanted all those kids, too. I mean, he just would have a lot of kids. Jack wanted to have a lot of kids, believe it or not, but it wasn't going to happen in that marriage. They, they, physically, they weren't producing kids. They... Just wasn't happening. They had the, you know, Arabella died, Patrick died, and, and they tried, but uh, they just were, it wasn't going to happen. So and Jack wasn't very nice about it either, I don't think. Uh, he should have been there when he was there, when he wasn't there. And what about Bobby and Jackie? I don't know. I, I, I think that's probably what it looked like. Very close. Uh, Cling to each other in grief. Uh, 
I don't really care. I, I think it was very, that would be very human, whatever that was. I, I don't, somebody wrote a whole book about that. And I, I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows, and they're both gone. I, I think it's about shared love for someone else, and I can totally understood the emotions of, of the survivors. I totally get it. And why wouldn't you want to be close? It was a way of reminding you, each of you, of the guy is gone. She reminded, you know, I think he was, she was close to her, his brother, and he was the guy's brother. And I think it just makes sense to me. I don't, I don't think it's salacious. I just think it was what it was. I know he didn't like Anassas at all. Anassas, by the way, was one of the sh- Greek shippers who was shipping war supplies to China in the middle of the Korean War. And Bobby went to war with him back then in 53. So that, that thing started early. And he never liked Anassas. And he certainly didn't like him marrying his sister-in-law, Jack's wife. And who was the other relationship that started early? He and LBJ. I got this, I have to say, I got this from Robert Caro. In his latest book, Caro points out that in 1940, well, the story starts in 53, Bobby's having breakfast with Joe McCarthy, and Lyndon Johnson, the Democratic leader, comes walking by, and everybody gets up and shakes his hand, except Bobby, and Bobby holds back, and finally, Johnson more or less forces him to give him a handshake, and Bobby gives him a fish. He hardly even shakes his hand. And, you know, George Reedy, Johnson's press secretary, said, what was that about? And Johnson said, it's about 1940. In 1940, Johnson was a young New Dealer from Texas, an acolyte of FDR, and he was sitting in the Oval Office with FDR when FDR happened to be on the phone with Joe Kennedy. And he was filling him up with all kinds of BS, saying, come on home, bring Rose with you, we'll have dinner, can't wait to see you, Joe. And uh, then he does an aside to uh, LBJ, I'm going to fire the SOB. And apparently Johnson lived, dined out on that for years, and Bobby heard it. And that's how things start in D.C., it started early, and it never ended. And they were like, George Reese said it's like two dogs on a sidewalk. They don't like each other. Any closing thoughts? Something, your favorite part of your book or something? Well, I think I gave it to you. I think it's love for his brother and love for Ethel, which is real. I think it was learning. I think it was trying to make a better person of yourself. I really do think it's like rewriting your, your copy. You just keep trying to make it better. And Bobby was trying to make himself a better person in terms of civil rights, in terms of the Cold War. He stopped being a simple Cold War to becoming a guy who understood we got to avoid a war with the Russians. He, uh, he was very patriotic. Uh, I think we got him pretty much right. And I think, uh, I think he's exactly what we need today is a role model. Somebody who's trying to figure things out, who honestly doesn't have the simple left-right position figured out, who doesn't inherit his thinking but tries to be a, live as an existentialist and try to live through action and trying to figure things out through experience. And he had a lot of experience by the time he was in his early 30s. I mean, think about what he did. Is like the Rackets Committee up against the most frightening, frightening mobsters. This guy, Kirdorf, this guy was an arsonist and... You know, the stuff they said when, the, when they were burned to death, and they, what they would say to the cops in their last moment of life. And he had to deal with, uh, with Giancana. Not Giancana, he had to go after him, the Godfather. It was right out of the Godfather going after him and going after uh, Hoffa. And he was so wise about some things. He said, 
Hoffa can't quit the mob. He'll be killed. Whatever happened? He got killed. He's in some cement somewhere. We don't know where he is. He, he couldn't walk away. You can't, it's like in Michael. How many times Michael said, they keep pulling me back in, you know? And, and I think he had that figured out. It wasn't like he was liking being a mobster or being mobbed up. He just couldn't get out of it. He said something really smart one time. He said, uh, I'll end with this. He said, we'll have an African-American president in 40 years. He had pretty much had it right. He did not predict what we got now. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Got to sell books. Sell books. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.